55 years ago, uh, when I was a young, a young lad. Uh, this is uh, the Six Day War, and uh, we were Zoka on this day, the 28th of Eor, to regain uh, the old city and the Temple Mount and the Harabayas. And since then, there's been kind of a holiday that uh, Israel, or Yerushalayim in particular, celebrates that's called Yom Yerushalayim. Now, some say, there are Rabbanim that actually say Yom Yerushalayim is a bigger simcha than Yom Atzmoet, so even if they would not say Hallel or special prayers on Yom Atzmoet, some will do it on Yom, Yom Yerushalayim. The truth is, when you think about uh, Yom Yerushalayim, there are really two things you think about. On one hand, there's a tremendous, tremendous simcha. For 19 years, Jews were not allowed to even live in the old city. Uh, in fact, there are famous pictures in 1948 of the last residents of the old city who were actually from people, Haredim people. They're leaving with a white flag. They have to leave the city with a white flag of surrender. Uh, and uh, for 19 years, we didn't have access to the old city. We didn't have access to the Harabayas, to the Kaisal Maravi, the last wall of the, of the uh, courtyard around the Temple Mount, the wall around the Temple Mount. You know, of course, the Kosel is not a wall of the Beis Hamikdash. It's a Kosel of the Harabayas. But still, it's the last thing that we have. So, Baruch Hashem, if uh, we're able now to pray in the Mokam Hamikdash, and some people even believe you're allowed to go in the Harabayas. We talked about that. But you know, if you don't go in the Harabayas, you pray at the Kaisel. That's a tremendous, tremendous thing. And Bichlal, every time you get Eretz Yisrael out of the hands of non-Jews, that's considered to be a great, great bracha. On the other hand, it also reminds us that we have not yet achieved a geula. When you look at the uh, old city and you see the golden dome of the rock, the beautiful golden dome, so what goes through your mind? Do you think, ah, what a beautiful picture that is? Or do you say, chas v'shalom, this is the, the goyim, the umos ha'olam, building a mosque on the site of the makam of the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the makam of the Mikdash. So people think, oh, it's so beautiful, the Jerusalem skyliner is such a beautiful thing. Look at that beautiful golden dome. Yeah, it is pretty. But really, it should make us cry. It shouldn't be something that we get pleasure from. It means the makam of the mikdash is desecrated. And we still are in a massive of Gullus with the sinas chinam, hatred, polarization among Jews, sickness, violence, terror, nuclear war, threats of nuclear war. So, you know, after the Six-Day War, it was such a miraculous nitzachan, really, that, that Israel in a few days, with very few losses, were able to defeat uh, all of these Arab uh, nations that were so much more numerous. It was such a nace, it was such a clear nace, that there was a tremendous arousal for tshuva. People were doing tshuva. People saw, it only comes from Hashem. Uh, all of the bal tshuva yeshivos, the famous bal tshuva yeshivos, whether it be Eisha Torah or Or Sameach, they started after the Six-Day War because uh, that's when people started saying, oh, there must be a God in the world. It's not Shaykh, it's not possible for all of this to happen. But side by side with that attitude, there was another attitude. And that is, gee, if our army can defeat all of those millions of Arabs, it's got to be that we have the greatest army in the world. We're the smartest people, we're the strongest people, we're the best trained people. And this is a poisonous attitude. 
This is what the Torah warns us against. The Torah says when you come to Eretz Yisrael and you have many, many victories against your enemies, your heart will become haughty. And you will forget Hashem. And you will say, this, these are very famous words, it is my strength and my might that has done everything. So there were two different reactions to the Six-Day War. And you know Yerushalayim. One reaction was, there's no way we could have done this. It has to be from HaKadosh Baruch The other was the opposite. Wow, we're much better than we thought. We're great, we're fantastic, we're strong, we're powerful. We can kick anybody and beat them, which is the attitude of Kochi Viyot Now, a few years after the Six-Day War, you know, in 1973, we had another war. And this was a surprise attack on Yom Kippur. Why the Yom Kippur War? Why did the Arabs attack us on Yom Kippur? Because they figured almost everybody's in Shul. All, even the secular Jews are in Shul, so, the, so nobody's going to be prepared. But you know, yeah, yeah, you need to know something. There actually was a hashgacha practice in uh, attacking us on Yom Kippur because literally the roads were empty. If you ever, ever look at pictures of the highways on Israel on Yom Kippur, if you've ever seen a picture, so there are no cars on the highways. I mean, basically, there are people who, I mean, unfortunately, there are people who are so not religious that they'll be riding their bicycles on Yom Kippur. So some people, not everybody keeps Yom Kippur. But such an overwhelming majority do that literally the highways are totally empty. And as a result, soldiers from all over the country were able to get where they needed to go, like right away. Had it been in the middle of the week, it would have taken longer. There would have been traffic jams. So paradoxically, being attacked on Yom Kippur was a little bit of a bracha because it enabled immediate mobilization of the army. But if you know your history or your current events, uh, the Yom Kippur War, Baruch Hashem, Eretz Yisrael emerged okay from the war, but many, many people died. It was a very demoralizing defeat. And some understand this, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to rectify the attitude of Kochi V'yotzim Yodi so that we understand that without HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we're going to lose. Without HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we're not going to be able to do it. So, in a sense, the aftermath of the Six-Day War was a tremendous uh, aliyah, tremendous excitement. Uh, the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War was actually a downer. There was a lot of depression, a lot of achzava, a lot of disappointments. Um, the tshuva movement slowed up a little bit. It didn't, Hashem, it didn't stop, but it slowed up a little bit. But in reality, Hashem is just telling us that without HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we're not going to be Matzliach. Now that sounds simple, but people forget it all the time, and we needed to be reminded. Did you want to say something? Question. Um, why do some of them say that Yom Yerushalayim is a greater day than Yom Because Yom was actually the beginning of a war, meaning Yom Ha'atzma'ut was not a victory. Yom Ha'atzma'ut is Israel declared its independence that night, which happened to be Friday night, we were attacked by uh, many, many Arabs. So what are you celebrating exactly? You're celebrating your declaration of independence, but there was no Hatzalah. We were in a deep, deep Sakana. Yom Yerushalayim represents the Nitzachan, of, of uh, capturing uh, the Harabayas and capturing the Ir Ho'atika 
uh, the old uh, the old city. So that's why it's considered to be very chashif. Um So, on one hand, when we think about this day, we should be grateful and happy. On the other hand, we also have to know that the Geula is not here yet. You know, after the Six-Day War, people were so euphoric that some religious people, the religious people, they wanted to change the Nusach of the Bracha on Tisha B'av. On Tisha B'av, if you remember the Siddur, Mincha of Tisha B'av, we say a Bracha Nachem. We ask Hashem to comfort us, and we talk about comfort us because the city is destroyed and desolate and empty and burned, and please, Hashem, restore the city. So some people felt, hey, what am I saying this now? I mean, Baruch Hashem Yerushalayim is united, and there's so much building going on. In fact, there's probably too much building going on. That's why it's, uh, whatever it is, hard to breathe sometimes. But the economy is going good, and so many Yidin live here, and so much Torah is learned here. Like, why are you talking about the city is destroyed and desolate and bereft? So there were some religious people, some from people, who actually wanted to change that bracha because it didn't reflect what they thought was the reality. But as you would probably guess, um, all of the Gedolim and the, the Rebbe included said you can't. You know, there's no way you can just you know, take the sitter and, and change the sitter. And, and it was pointed out that, yeah, even though externally, Baruch Hashem, you know, buildings are up and Jews are living here and that's something to be grateful for. And even in Ruchnius, even spiritually, people are learning Torah and doing mitzvahs. But there's still so much that's not yet here. Mashiach is not here yet. Or at least, well, that's a semantic issue. Maybe he's here, but not openly revealed yet. Okay, that's whatever the issue is going to be. Uh, we still, we are still in Golos. Even in Yerushalayim, we are still in Golos. Uh, we don't have a Beis HaMikdash. We can pray at the Kaisel, on the Mokom, where HaKadosh Baruch Hu dwells in this world, our mosques and the Umos Olam, right? Just like Rabbi Akiva, when they saw a fox in the Kodesh HaKdashim, they were crying, that Shualim Hilchubah. So therefore, uh, the Nachem prayer is still very much uh, relevant to us because we have not yet experienced the full Geula Shlema. That's why we, we yearn for Mashiach. I mean, if, if the Pshat is, everything is great now, then you don't need anything else, right? Elamai, the answer is, we thought I do need something else. We're not there yet. It's like a child. You ever ask your parents, you know, are we there yet, right? The kid's on a long trip. So uh, the answer is, we're not there yet, but soon. But soon. We'll, we'll be there soon. We're just not there yet. And therefore, Yom Yerushalayim is both a time of simcha and a time of knowing that we really don't have everything yet. And especially the sinas chinam among Jews, the lack of Abbas Yisrael. I don't want to get too much into news, but just last Shabbos, not yesterday, but a week ago, uh, there was between, within one big chasidus, within Ger chasidus, one big chasidus, there was such a bitter machlekes about who should kind of be Rebbe or whatever it would be that uh, there was mamish violence, mamish violence. I mean, no, Baruch Hashem, nobody got killed, but uh, people were injured, things were broken. This was on Shabbos, there was Chil Shabbos and the like. So we're not, we're not there yet. Uh, we have not been misaking the sinas, we have not rectified the sinas chinam that exists in Klal Yisrael. And since our Chazal tell us that the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed because of sinas chinam, 
it cannot be rebuilt until we have Abbas Yisrael, because you need to rectify the reason why there was a Chorban. So if the reason there was a Chorban is Sinas then we know that that's what we have to, that's what we have to work upon. So uh, Yom Yerushalayim, therefore, is a mixed day, I think. I think it's a day of gratitude, HaKaras HaTayv, to HaKadosh Baruch but at the same time, uh, knowing that uh, we need the Geula Shleima. It's like, um, it's like that's the idea of Shabbos, right? Shabbos is me'ain olam haba. Shabbos is a taste of olam haba. So just like they say there used to be a potato chip commercial, I bet you can't eat just one. When you eat one, you're going to eat more. So Geula is the same way. When you taste olam haba, you want more of it. It's not like uh, something, sometimes you eat something and you're full. But Eilam doesn't work that way. You taste a little bit, you want more and more and more and more. And that's why uh, on Shabbos we, Bedavka, feel so much the yearning for the Mashiach and a day like this too. Especially we should, we should yearn for, for the Mashiach. Now I just want to, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to talk about this for the whole hour. I'm going to switch back to Shemitah in a minute. But I just want to share with you a little ha'ara on the origin of the name of Yerushalayim. First of all, uh, interesting point. The Torah nowhere refers to Yerushalayim. Every mitzvah about uh, being older regal, coming up for the pilgrimage festivals, going to the Beis HaMikdash, Yerushalayim is always described anonymously. Ba'makom asher Yifchar Hashem. The place that Hashem will choose to be holy when you get to Eretz Yisrael. Now we know that became Yushalayim, but it is nowhere called Yushalayim. It is called Hamakom Asher Yifchar Hashem. That's why the Beis Hamikdash is called Beis Habechira, right? When the Rambam has the laws of the Beis Hamikdash, that's called Hilchais Beis Habechira. At the end of Dayenu, you'll recall the last of the Dayenus is Ubana Lano Es Beis Habechira Lechaper Al Kolavaynesenu. Why is it called the House of Bechira, the house that Hashem chose? Because that's the pasuk. Hamakom Asher Yivchar Hashem. So here's the question: Why does Hashem keep it secret? Why does Hashem conceal from B'nai Yisrael and from the nations of the world where this holy place is going to be? We don't find out till we get to Eretz Yisrael. Even though the Harabais was already holy, it was the place from which Hashem took the dirt to make other Marishain. It was the place from which, uh, where Yitzchak Avinu was going to be sacrificed by Avram, and yet... The Jewish people didn't know that Yerushalayim was going to be the holy site of the Beis HaMikdash. So the Rambam in the Moran Nebuchim gives a very, very interesting reason. The Rambam says that if the nations of the world would know that Yerushalayim is the holy city, they would never let us conquer it. They would fight with such veracity to hold on to that holiness that we, well, obviously, we could have beaten them, but that would have made the war much, much, much more difficult. So Hashem didn't want the nations to know what was the holy city, so they wouldn't fight for it so much. 
Okay, so that's what the Rambam says. Now, the Rambam even goes further. This is why even B'nai Yisrael didn't know where the holy city would be. Because you know, if you learn the book of Yoshua, you know that the Beis HaMikdash is located in the territories of Shevet, Yehuda, and Binyamin. In fact, it's interesting that it's on the borderline. Part of the Beis HaMikdash is in the portion of Yehuda, and part of the Beis HaMikdash is in the portion of Binyamin. It reminds me of uh, something really, very, really bizarre. You know, uh, there is uh, a library uh, in the U.S., a public library that's in Vermont that's on the border between the United States and Canada. And for some crazy reason, I have no idea why this happened, the border is in the middle of the library. So one side of the library is Canadian and one side is U.S. So if you take out a book from a shelf and you want to check it out, you have to go through passport control. There's like a, a like something, in the, something in the middle of the library that you have to go through. You know, you know, you go to the bathroom, passport. You know, you know, the whole, whole, a whole thing. So Lahavdil, the base of Mikdash is the same way. The boundary between Yehuda and Binyamin runs in the middle of the base of Mikdash. Now the Rambam says, if the tribes were were to know ahead of time that this is where the base of Mikdash is going to be, they never would have agreed to the division of land, right? They had to divide land in which Yushalayim fell in the territory of Yehuda and Binyamin. So therefore, it had to be concealed from them as well. Because if there would be holiness, the Umosa Olam would have fought, and even Klal Yisrael would have disagreed to give up. They would not have agreed to give up that land to Yehuda and Binyamin. So this is why the Torah actually does not tell us where the holy city is going to be. So that's one observation the Rambam makes. Then he makes a second observation that's very interesting. All of us know, and again, if you learn the book of Yoshua, you, you of course know this, that we gained Eretz Yisrael by military conquest, meaning how did we get Eretz Yisrael? We got it by Melchama. Yeah, there were, there were miracles, of course, but we got it through Melchama. We made a Melchama against the seven nations that are indigenous, that are native to Eretz Yisrael, the Kenani, Amori, Chite, Amori, Prizi, etc. However, even though most of Eretz Yisrael was conquered by Milchama, there are three areas in Eretz Yisrael where we did not conquer it by war. We actually bought it. We purchased it. We got it by purchase from the non-Jewish Canaanite owners. The first is Ma'ara Samachpela. Have you ever been to Hebron? I have, yeah, well, again, I, I have not been to Hebron in many, many years, but I, I still remember. You know, Hebron is a very, very, very Makam Kaddish. Uh, people sometimes don't realize how holy it is uh, in terms of rank, so to speak. After Yerushalayim, Hebron is the holiest of the cities. Uh, it's the, and many, many consider it to be together with Kever Rachel, to be the, the highest Madrega of Tefillah, to be Mispalel by the Avais and the Imais. It's interesting that the Maras Machpela is in a mosque. A mosque is built over the Maras Machpela. So when you daven at the Kavaram, let's say, of Avram and Sarah, you are standing in a mosque. 
Now, it is interesting that you see, according to this, that although halachically you're not allowed to go into a church, and that's a big problem for tourists to go into the Sistine Chapel or they want to see the artwork, but you're not allowed to go into a church, uh, you are allowed to go into a mosque. And the difference is because Christianity, the Rambam writes, is treated like Avodazara because of Yashka and, 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 and uh, giving a body to God, etc. And the halacha is, you're not allowed to go into a makayim avaydazara, even if you're not praying to the avaydazara, because there's a marasayan that people will think that uh, you're worshiping avaydazara. So you're not allowed to go into a church, but you are allowed to go into a mosque, because Islam is a monotheistic religion. Islam only believes in one God. So although they're rishoyim in many, many ways, Halachically, I can go into a mosque and dive into Hashem. I'm not allowed to go into a church and dive into Hashem. Now, just as a little aside, since I mentioned it, let me just mention that this does raise some interesting peripheral questions. For example, what if um, I'm not going in uh, to see the art? What if I'm an electrician? What if I'm a plumber? <laughs> if I'm a Jewish plumber, I happen to be Orthodox. Am I allowed to do plumbing jobs? in churches? Am I allowed to fix the electricity or the heating or the air conditioning in churches? Uh, is that nichlal in the Yisra of going in? All right, so some permit that because when you're coming as a worker, people know clearly you're not coming as a worshiper. Or another issue, which is mainly in the United States, maybe other countries as well, uh, in a lot of places, Voting booths are in churches, meaning uh, you vote, right? You got, yeah. Say again, huh? Blood donations, right? Voting. Uh, are you allowed to do that? So there, we do have a hedger because it's not in the sanctuary proper. In other words, the issue is not entering the building; the issue is entering the room where they have services. So if you're going into the basement or the like, and it's for voting, so we actually consider it to be permitted. In fact. A lot of therapists rent a space. Churches often have uh, extra rooms or extra offices. So people like therapists or acupuncturists or whatever it would be, they rent space in church. So, so the question would be, can I go to a therapist, a Jewish therapist, uh, let's say, who has an office in a church? Once again, you're not going into the sanctuary uh, per se, so we do, uh, we do moderate. And of course, this does raise an interesting question about the chief rabbis of England, uh, you know, uh, both uh, Rabbi Sachs, Zechariah uh, Lebracha, and his predecessor, uh, Rabbi Jacobowitz, Zechariah Lebracha, they attended royal weddings. I think Rabbi Jacobowitz was Diana's wedding to uh, Charles, and uh, the last one is, what's the guy's name? William's wedding to Kate, Kate Middleton. Excuse me for knowing these names. I have just happened to know them, but okay. <laughs> I should apologize. But anyway, uh, so the question was, these weddings are in Westminster Abbey. If anybody has been in London, Westminster Abbey is the big, big, big cathedral, the very, very big church. Uh, now, this is even worse than going into the Sistine Chapel to see the art. When I go in to see the art, I'm seeing the art. Here, I am mamish going to a religious Christian ceremony. In a way, that's much worse, right? You're not just walking in to look at the walls. You're sitting at a wedding where they praise Yashka and they do all those other things. 
So the big question was, what was the heter, if any, for Rabbi Sachs and Rabbi Jacobowitz to go uh, to the royal weddings? So the heter that's given, but it's not clear that it is a heter, and, and many would say there is no heter, is that there is a concept of karav lamalchus, meaning to say, when you are like a government official and you have a personal relationship with the king or the queen and you are able to help the Jewish people by the position of your authority, you have certain heterim not to do things that will alienate the monarch because that could turn out to be something that would be negative or hurtful for the Jewish people. So some say that the chief rabbis of England are really a government position. They are really a government job. Uh, you know, you work for the queen or the king, if there would be a king. And therefore, they would have a heter of Karav of Lamalchus that they shouldn't make uh, Queen Elizabeth upset. Now, some people say that the idea of Karav of Lamalchus doesn't really apply today, because in the olden days, if you made a king angry, you know, a king might kill the Jews or he might put them in concentration camps. So, you know, so I better be really nice to the king because otherwise really, really bad things could happen to Yidin, to Klal Yisrael. Today, you know, Queen Elizabeth is a very nice woman. I mean, what she, I mean let's assume <laughs> Rabbi, Rabbi Sachs would say, you know, I just can't go to the wedding, it's a church. I mean, she's not going to kill, kill Jews. Uh, because, so some say like the idea of Karav Lamalchus really does not apply unless you have a crazy dictator or someone like that. Okay, but still, that was the hedger they used that. Even if she's not going to kill anybody, but maybe, you know, she wouldn't be so friendly to the Jewish people if they would have hurt her that way. So, you know, who knows? But, so I'm not, I'm not saying there is a heter, but I'm saying that the heter was based on Karayv and Karayv Lamalchus. Um, have you met the Queen? No, I have not. I have not met the Queen. <laughs> yeah. Although I want to tell you, I, I know a rabbi. I know a rabbi. You know, a very nice guy. And he was just playing with his kids uh, in uh, London Park. And all of a sudden, he sees Diana. You know, she was still alive then. She was, uh, brought her kids into the park. Like she wanted to have some privacy. And she kind of left the palace. And he couldn't believe it. He asked him, is that her? He said, yeah. And uh, he actually met Diana and whatever it is. They had a little schmooze, whatever. And uh, she said, so she, she, so she, she actually said something. She said, I didn't know rabbis talked to women or whatever. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, but I, I've never met the Queen, no. <laughs> okay. um, and I'd also heard that um, there's a difference between a Catholic church and some of the Protestant churches where they don't necessarily do the... Yeah, yeah, so, so here's the thing. And um, they don't have yeah. their statues. Yeah, yeah, so, so this depends. You, you, are, you are correct, and this might, might depend. Um, the Rambam is before, the, uh, before there was Protestant. The Rambam is pre-Reformation. So when the Rambam talked about Christianity, the only Christianity he knew of, the only that existed, was essentially Catholicism. Now the Catholic Church, besides the fact that there are statues and icons, believes in what's called the Trinity. Now the Trinity means there are three parts of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, well, whatever it is, we don't have to go into the details of it. But basically, it puts God in a physical body, and it also creates multiplicity rather than unity. So that type of Christianity, the Rambam says, is called idolatry, is called avodah Now, the Reformation 
is when Protestant got, right? Why is it called Protestant? Because it was a protest against Catholicism. That's why it's called Protestantism. Was really a revolution. I mean, it was a peaceful revolution that occurred in the 1500s, way after the Rambam. And the one who started it, the one who invented Protestantism, was a fellow Martin Luther, right? Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King. He was named after Martin Luther, but Martin Luther, who was a German Catholic priest who uh, broke away from the Catholic Church and created a new Christian religion. Uh, but the truth is, Protestantism is not one thing. Protestantism then has a million different sects. Episcopalian, Methodist, I mean, all of these are Protestant, right? Baptist and, and the like. Uh, later, Henry VIII broke away from the Catholic Church because he wanted to do something they didn't allow him to do. Uh, and he created, he created the Church of England. So England is not a Catholic country. England is an Anglican country. Anglican just means the Church of England. And officially, Queen Elizabeth is the head of the Church of England. <laughs> she is the head of that. But the clergyman who heads the Church of England is called the Archbishop of Canterbury. So that title is like the, he's like the Pope of the Church of England, okay? Uh, so you are right that it, it is possible that some types of Protestantism might not be Avodah but many are going to be Avodah because even if they don't have statues, they still believe in a trinity, so they make God into several entities, and therefore there would still be a problem. The only Christianity that's clearly not Avodah is only one little branch of Protestantism that is called Unitarianism. There aren't that many Unitarians. They're mainly in New England. Unitarianism believes there's only one God, Unitarianism. They don't believe in the Trinity, and they look at Yashka as just their Mashiach, but they don't look at him as God. So a Unitarian, well, it's a mistaken belief. Obviously, it's a mistaken belief, but, but it's not a Bodhisattva because they don't believe in multiple gods. So it's a little... Well, 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 no, every church is the same, but, but, but there are, there are shittas that say, they make the following difference, they say that even if Christianity is idolatry for Jews, it's not idolatry for B'nai Noach, in other words, this is a different orientation, meaning we know a Jew cannot believe in idolatry, and even a non-Jew cannot believe in idolatry, because Avodah Zarah is one of the prohibitions of the seven commandments of Noah, right? But Rabbeinu Tam, who was Rashi's grandson, actually says that the Torah tolerates non-Jews making certain mistakes that it doesn't allow Jews to make. So according to Rabbeinu Tam, this is an extreme. Even Catholicism is not Avodah Zarah under the seven commandments of Noah, even though it would be Avodah Zarah for a Jew. So I, as a Jew, cannot go into a church because for me it's Avodah Zarah, but Rabbeinu Tam says the Goy is not transgressing anything. So maybe, and the Rambam seems to disagree with that, but that's what Rabbeinu Tam says. Um, I think by implication, I have to say, I think the Rebbe himself followed that view because I just want to mention something, that uh, the Rebbe once said a really, really interesting thing. You know, they used to have in the United States uh, in the public schools, they would begin each day with a prayer. It would be a prayer. 
And the Supreme Court in the 1960s said public schools are not allowed to have prayers because you have to have a separation of church and state. And since public schools are funded by the government, by the state and local government, you cannot have religious services uh, in a public school. You can have it in a private school, but you can't have it in a public school. So since then, they stopped doing prayers in public schools. That goes back to 1960. So the Rebbe once said that, you know, the 60s were a very turbulent era. There were a lot of drugs, a lot of uh, promiscuous sexual activity, breakdown of morality, which we're still going through now. The Rebbe said all of that was because, at least it started, because they stopped praying to God. That if at the beginning of every day, little kids understood there was a God in the world, there was Hashem in the world, then that would give them a sense of morality. That would give them a sense of some limitation. You take Hashem, even if it was only like one minute, just one minute a day, one minute a day, that could change a person's orientation. So once you took out uh, any reference of God in a public school setting, so kids are being raised without any sense that there's a creator in the world, so uh, their morality is no longer, you know, why be moral? So it's interesting that the Rebbe said, I believe, I don't want to say for sure, that even if they were praying to Jesus, even if they were doing a Christian prayer, and there were Jews in the, in the classroom, he said it was better than taking the prayer out totally. Because at least people have a sense that there's God in the world. Yeah, it's a mistake, it's, 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 it's a perversion, it's, it's a distortion of what Hashem is, but at least it is some idea of Hashem. And when you take out any idea of Hashem, in fact, the Rambam actually writes somewhere else that an atheist is worse than an idolater. Because an idolater at least believes there is something above them, even though it's wrong, fake. The atheist believes there's nothing. And he said, the Rambam writes, it's better to have some sense of authority over you than to simply uh, believe in nothing. So it seems that the Rebbe may have held that at least for non-Jews, even a profession of belief in Yashka would not be sinful for them, for them, because uh, it's not Avedizara. It's still considered to be a belief in Supreme Hashem. Okay. So, be it as it may, though, going back, uh, I, I, I don't know how I got on this at all. I've no rem- mm-hmm. I, I was talking about Severin the was idea. Bought by Albert. Say what? <laughs> you remember, remember, say again? Severin was bought by Albert. Yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, Hever, got, got. Thank you. We're thank you. Right, right. So, yeah. so basically, yeah, okay, you're correct. I just mentioned mm-hmm. Moscow as Derek Hagav, but you're correct. So, most of Eretz Israel was conquered by military force, three areas were purchased. Hebron, actually not all of Hebron, but Mara Samachpela, was purchased by Avram. The second is Yaakov Avinu bought Shechem, the city of Shechem. And it even tells us what he paid for it. Now Shechem today is not a Jewish city. Shechem today is called Nablus, that's an Arabic word, and mainly it's Arabs. Uh, Yosef HaTzadik, however, is not buried in Mara Samachpela. Yosef HaTzadik is buried in Shechem. In fact, he was sold in Shechem. It's interesting. He is buried in the city that he was sold. He was sold in Shechem, and of course Shechem is also the site. Right? So Shechem has many paranios. 
Many, many tragedies happened in Shechem. Yosef was sold in Shechem. Uh, well, Dina was kidnapped and raped in Shechem. Shimon and Levi killed the city of Shechem. And we know that when the 10 tribes broke away from the two tribes, they made their capital near Shechem, and that is where Yeravam ben Nevat, the first king of the 10 tribes, built golden calves so people would worship them instead of going to the base of Mikdash. So Shechem is what Chazal call a city that is Muchan leparaniyas. It is designated for tragic things to happen. And yet, and maybe this is the reason, Yosef's kever is in Shechem to kind of bring the zechus of Yosef uh, into that city. But you know that, I mean, I'm sure over the years, if you follow the news, uh, you'll know that there's often a lot of vandalism at Yosef's kever, desecrations. Uh, you didn't get murdered. I think, I believe there's a yeshiva, a small yeshiva, by, it's very, very, very dangerous to live there, a small yeshiva by Yosef's kever, and they kind of need 24-hour security because uh, it's very dangerous. And even with all the protection, Arabs will break through and, and kill. Right? So if you want to go to Shechem, I don't even know if you could go to Shechem, but uh, it would be... I mean, going to Hebron also is very difficult. See, it's so interesting that you'd figure the places that we buy, we ought to have no problem. We bought it. <laughs> I mean, if it's something we conquered... So the Goyim can say, hey, you conquered it from us, you stole it from us. Like Rashi says in the beginning of the Chumash, the nations of the world are going to say, you stole our land. And that's why Hashem has to say, I created the world, I give it to whom I want. Right? That's Rashi, the very first Rashi in the Chumash. But when it comes to Maras Hebron, and when it comes to Shechem, they don't have any claim at all we stole it. We bought it. So some actually want to say that Hashem knew that Hebron and Shechem would be the bitterest machloksim of the nations against us, and therefore he wanted to give us the defense that we bought it, to give us the strongest ownership that we have. Hebron, too, is very dangerous. I mean, Hebron is a very dangerous place. Right next to Hebron, there's a beautiful Jewish settlement with a fence called Kiryat Arba. That's not the safest place in the world either, but that is a totally Jewish settlement that has a security fence. But there are some Yidden who actually live in Hebron itself. And that is a very, very, very dangerous place to live. And they're Mamish Moser Nefesh. And the same thing is true for Shechem. There's only like a tiny little yeshiva there, and they live there. And, you know, surrounded, you know, I mean, I don't even know how you go to a Makola, I don't know, I just don't know the details. I mean, you can't, you can't do anything beyond your little, little place because you are surrounded by people who will just want to kill you as soon as they see you. Okay. Now, the third area that we bought is none other than the Harabayas. We bought the Harabayas. We did not conquer the Harabayas. Where do we see this? This is at the end of the book of Shmuel. Maybe, maybe you learned this. And that is, remember at the end of Shmuel, a lot of things happened. David HaMelech counted this population. And you're not supposed to count people 
because that brings an ayin hara, and that brings a plague, and people were dying because David Amalek wanted to count the population. And essentially, David Amalek was given the message that this is a punishment because David should have taken uh, steps to prepare for the building of the base on Mikdash. Although David was not allowed to build the base on Mikdash. Remember, because he was a man of war. And the base on Mikdash has to be built by a man of peace, which is his son. But he should have made preparations. And among those preparations was buying the Temple Mount. Somebody owns the Temple Mount. The owner of the Temple Mount was a guy whose name was Aravna, Aravna, Hayavusi, the Jebusite. Yavusi is one of the seven nations. Aravna, Hayavusi. So what did David do? David gathered money from each of the 12 tribes so that everybody participated. And David Amelech bought the Goran. Goran is the threshing floor. Aravna used the Temple Mount as a threshing floor. He would thresh his grain on it. So David bought the Goran, the threshing floor, of Aravna Hayavusi. And that became, eventually, the site of the Beis Hamikdash and the Kodesh HaKadoshim and the like. So, three areas of Eretz Israel we bought. Chevron, Omar Samachpela, Shechem, Harabayas. Now, the Rambam asks this question. Why did we have to buy the Harabayas? I mean, the rest of Yerushalayim, we conquered. We conquered Yerushalayim. So why couldn't we conquer the Harabayas? What was it that you have to buy the Harabayas? So the Rambam says a very interesting idea, which has some political relevance today. He says that since the Beis HaMikdash is the dwelling place of the Shekhinah, it is where God's presence lives in the world, and it's the nerve center. Uh, in fact, the Tanya has an arichas on this. All of the Shefa, all of the godly beneficence, all of the godly flow that comes into the world when there was a Beis HaMikdash comes via the Beis HaMikdash. The Beis HaMikdash sends out the divine Shefa. And we know that the name of Hashem is Shalom. That's the essence of Hashem. It's necessary that a Beis HaMikdash be constructed through a process of Shalom and not through a process of Milchama. The same way that David HaMelech was not allowed to build the Beis HaMikdash. Right? Nasan HaNavi said, because he is a man of war. Now, think about this. What do you mean David is a man of war? Every milchama David HaMelech engaged in was Hashem commanded him to do it. He was defending the Jewish people. His mitzvahs, I mean, his wars were a mitzvah. There was no sin in the wars that David HaMelech was doing. These are milchama's mitzvah. He was doing mitzvahs. So why would that disqualify him? Why would bloodshed disqualify him if this was a mitzvah? This was not like stop murder. This was not murder. But the answer is, the Beis HaMikdash has to be connected to Sholem. Therefore, the man of Nochama cannot bring down the Shekhinah. 
So the argument goes, the same logic that says David cannot build the base on Mikdash also says that the base of Mikdash cannot be secured, or the makam of the Mikdash cannot be, cannot, the makam of the Mikdash cannot be secured by violence or war. It has to be by consent, by consent. Now that's a very, very interesting idea because today there are people that say we ought to just forcibly take the Temple Mount away from the Arabs. It means that might cause a nuclear war, but, but, but they say, let's, let's do it. And that's what we're supposed to do. It could be, according to the Rambam, but Dafka, that's not the way it should be done, meaning you have to negotiate, you have to get consent, because everything connected to the Beis HaMikdash has to be through Shalim and not through Machlaikas. See? So it's very interesting that why the Harabayas had to be purchased. That's why, for example, you're not allowed to use iron tools in cutting the rocks, right? That's when they had the shamir, right? The shamir is this little worm that eats through rock. Some would say it was a laser, <laughs> whatever, but Chazal describe it as, as a worm because barzel is a weapon that shortens life and the Beis HaMikdash is about life. Now, it's always bothered me a little bit because obviously quite a lot of lives are taken in the Beis HaMikdash. I mean, you slaughter korbanos. That's a bit of a question. But at least the construction of the building, you can't use metal. You can't use anything that shortens, that shortens life. Okay. So those are some things to think about, uh, about Yerushalayim, number one. The fact that it's not mentioned anywhere in the Torah. And number two... The fact that the Harabayas was purchased rather than conquered. And even in the, and if you look at the Gula Hasid, if you look at the future uh, redemptions, you see that there's a lot of psukim that talk about all of the Goyim will come to Yerushalayim and they will acknowledge the holy mountain of Hashem. There's an idea that the Yumos Olam are also going to embrace Hashem that day, right? The uh, motto of the uh, United Nations, which is from Yeshayahu, Lo Yisa Goy El Goy Cherev. One nation will not lift its sword against the other nation. Lo Yilmadu Od Milchama. They will not learn war anymore. And they will beat their swords, you know, into uh, plow, plows and uh, into pruning hooks, that they could just prune their, their spears into pruning hooks. All of that is a reference to the Umo Sa'olam coming to Yerushalayim to serve Hashem, that uh, we will not conquer Yerushalayim, but we will somehow have the Umo Sa'olam acknowledge. Okay, but now let's go back to the name Yerushalayim. I think it's, it's worthwhile, you know you, you know, you live in Yerushalayim, you learn in Yerushalayim, we should focus on the name a little bit. Yerushalayim is actually two cities in one. Uh, just like Minneapolis, St. Paul, or Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri. And that is, the, the first part of the city, the original part of the city is called Shalem, and the second part of the city is called Yireh. So Yerushalayim is Yireh Shalem. So let's look at each part of the city. The original part of the city was called Shalem, which in English is Salem. 
right? So Salem, the Salem witch trials, is actually the English pronunciation for Shalem. I've never understood why, why English translations change S-H to S. I, I, don't, I don't know why. They, that, that, that's how English translates biblical Hebrew. I don't know why. I mean, you could just as easily call it Shalem, which is uh, what, what the Hebrew pronunciation is, but for some reason, Shalem is translated as Salem. No Salem, Massachusetts, the Salem witch trials. You may have heard of that. Okay. By the way, that's uh, my famous, my favorite example of how unfair these trials are. You know, when a woman was suspected of being a witch, and she said she wasn't a witch, there was a way they would test her. Uh, they would tie uh, a rock to her leg, a heavy rock, and they would throw her in the water. So if she drowned, that shows she was innocent. She had no power of magic. But if somehow she floated and she lived, she's a witch. Uh, so she would be burnt at the stake. So, like, there's no way she could win. I mean, this is really, you know, because, <laughs> I mean, she's proven innocent only if she dies in the process. <laughs> and if she doesn't die, that proves that she's guilty, so they're going to kill her, right? So no way to win. By the way, um, okay, forgive the digression, but there are interesting thoughts that come up. There's a halakha that's that way, too. The halacha says like this, you know, that even if an animal is kosher, and even if you shecht it, there's a, there are times you can't eat it. There's a whole category here. There's something called nevela, uh, three categories. Behema temea, nevela, trefa. Now we collectively call those trefa, not kosher, but there are three different terms. A behema temea is an animal that's not a kosher animal, a chazer a horse, it's not a kosher animal. So even if you shechted it, you wouldn't be allowed to eat it. It's a trafe animal. It doesn't have split hoofs, or it doesn't chew its cud. You need both sides. A horse right. is a trafe? A horse is trafe, huh? Not a, a horse is a trafe or an animal? No, a horse is behema temea. In other words, behema temea, I mean, no, others, colloquially, we call it trafe. Right. That's a colloquial term. Right. The halachic term for a horse and a chazer and a rabbit is behema temea. Again, we call it treif, but behema temea. Now, nevela is very different. Nevela is a kosher animal that has split hoofs and chews its gut, but it wasn't shechted. You shot it with a gun, you hit it with a hammer, uh, you broke its neck instead of slaughtering under the throat. Right, right, so beef, uh, non-kosher steak. Non-kosher steak comes from a kosher animal, comes from a cow. So why is it not kosher? Because it wasn't shechted. Now again, we call that treif. We call it treif. That's just what we call it. But if you want to be accurate, that is called nevela. So nevela is a kosher animal that was not properly shechted. Oh, okay, so that's correct. So if it died on its own, it's also an avela, meaning any kosher animal that did not undergo shechita, whether it was killed or whether it died on its own, is called nevela. Same thing, nevela. Okay. By the way, uh, a giraffe is a kosher animal, right? A giraffe has split hoofs, and a giraffe even chews its cut. So people always ask the question, why can't I eat giraffe? Uh, so everyone gives an answer which is incorrect. They say, oh, the answer is because the neck is so long, 
we don't know where to shecht it. I'm sure you've heard that answer. That is not a true answer. It's the other way around. If the neck is long, you can shecht it anywhere on the neck. Shechita is valid anywhere on the neck. If the neck is 10 feet, you have 10 feet to shecht it. So, if that's the case, why don't we shecht giraffes? Well, number one, there are simpler answers for this. Uh, number one, it is extremely dangerous to shecht a giraffe. You know, giraffes, giraffes do not take kindly to somebody trying to slit their neck. And, you know, they're going to fight, right? So you don't want to fight with a giraffe you know, you're right up there. Uh, number two, I am told by people who have eaten, who have eaten giraffe meat that it's really not good. Uh, it's, it's very, very tough. You know, it's a, it's a wild animal. You know, so bichlal, uh, it's not advisable. So there's no mystical reason why we don't eat giraffes. Uh, it's simply because uh, it's dangerous to shecht and the meat, the meat, the meat doesn't taste good. But, but the point of shechit, that you don't know where to shecht it, that is not true because you have the whole neck to shecht it. Okay, so that's nevela. Well, giraffe would not be nevela, but uh, if it wouldn't be shechted, it would be nevela. Now, the third category, the third category is trefa. Trefa mamish. Now, trefa literally means an animal that was attacked by another animal. But essentially, what it means halachically is there is some perforation or injury to an internal organ. Like the lungs have holes in it, the liver has a hole in it, the stomach, the brain. So that means when you shecht, even when you shecht a kosher animal, if the animal has some abnormalities in its bone structure or its internal organs, that is called a trefa. That is why after an animal is shechted, someone needs to inspect the internal organs to see if there's some abnormality. In fact, I'm sorry for digression on digression, but, but it's a point of knowledge. Let me explain for a moment, what does it mean to say meat is glut, right? We always know there's kosher, and there's glot kosher, right? Glot kosher. So what is glot? Glot just means smooth kosher. What is smooth? Because here is the thing. One of the things, after we shecht an animal, somebody has to pull out the lungs and examine them for perforations. Because if there's any hole in the lung, the animal is a trefa and it cannot be eaten. Now, what you often have in lungs is you have adhesions. You have adhesions that connect the different lung tissues together. And the, now an adhesion does not make an animal a trefa, but the problem is an adhesion may be covering up a hole. So in regular kosher, we try to scrape away the adhesion very gently to see if there's a hole under the adhesion. So there could be adhesions. The Hebrew word for, or the Aramaic word for adhesions is sircha. So in regular kosher, we allow sirchos, but we try to scrape it away and see if there's a hole. So if there's a hole, it's a trefa. If there's no hole, it's going to be okay. Glot kosher says, we will not certify an animal as kosher unless the lungs are smooth and there aren't any adhesions. Because once there are adhesions, we are afraid there may be a hole that it's covering up. That's why the Hebrew word for glot 
is chalak, right? Chalak, right? The, the basar is chalak. What does chalak mean? Chalak means smooth, exactly what chalak means. Okay? So that's the idea of, of trefa, that uh, an animal that has certain injuries to its internal organs, and uh, this would be the issue of sircha and glot and 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 like. Okay. Now, what I wanted to share with you, again, this is like a triple quadruple digression, but I'm going to get back to the main point, too. Um, it's brought down, if an animal fell off a wall, just a sheep, just fell off, fell off a wall, plop, uh, we are choshesh, we are, we, we, we are worried that maybe its skeleton got dislocated. So we treat it like a treif and you don't shecht it, because maybe the bones are not in position. But it says, you can test the animal by putting it in water and seeing if it swims. It's mom is like the Salem witch trials. Because if it swims, that shows its bone structure is still healthy. So you can shecht it. If it drowns, then Nebuch, it was a trefa and uh, we couldn't shecht it. So <laughs> it always reminds me of the Salem witch trial. Okay. But why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because the Mephorshim say that the test that the animal is not a trefa because it swims is only if it swims against the current. If it can swim against the current, it has a good, healthy bone structure. But if all it can do is swim with the current, then even, says even a dead animal can be carried with the current. So you can't prove the animal is healthy if it swims with the current. Now what's the lesson there? It's a Musser lesson. The lesson is that the, only, the test if you're spiritually alive, are you strong enough to go against the current? If all you're gonna do is follow what everybody else does, that doesn't mean you're alive. Even a dead person can be carried with the current. So a Jew has to have the inner strength to do the right thing even if everybody else is going in the wrong direction. Do you know the story? <laughs> I don't know, it's probably not a true story, but the story was that um, in the middle of a highway, all the cars were going one direction and a guy was going in the wrong direction, very, very dangerous. And there were police, there were radio reports and TV reports about this crazy guy on the road that's going in the wrong direction, you know, get off the road. So uh, the, a wife calls her husband and says, you know, get off the road. There is a crazy driver that's going the wrong way. He's going to kill everybody. So the person says, you don't know how bad it is. It's not just one crazy driver. They're all going the wrong way. <laughs> right? So sometimes it's a little dangerous to uh, kind of do the opposite of everybody <laughs> because sometimes they're right. Uh, and if you, if you make a point, I always do the opposite of what everybody does, that's also a conformist, right? A conformist is not only somebody who does what everybody else does, but if you bedafka say, I will always do the opposite of what everybody else does, you're also a conformist because you're making your choice based on what they decide, either for or the opposite. But a yid has to have the strength to basically say, I'm going to serve Hashem no matter, no matter what. Again, if, uh, 
you study your Chabad history, particularly the Friedrich Rebbe in Russia, you will see such beautiful, beautiful examples of that Mesiras Nefesh Mamish to just say that I will die if I have to, and I won't even be afraid. I won't even be afraid of it. Uh, many, many stories in the middle, because there used to be these um, Jewish spies for the Communist Party. Uh, I don't remember, Yef something, I don't remember what the word was, but it's a Russian word. Uh, these were Jews who literally were spies on people who were doing mitzvahs, and they would inform on the authorities, and uh, whatever. Okay. All right. So to go back to this, okay, but this was, this was all a digression on Salem, Salem witch trial. And then I, okay. So, the original city of Jerusalem was called Shalem. Shalem is mentioned in the Torah. Do you remember, after Avram Avinu was victorious against four kings who kidnapped Lot. So the Torah mentions Malchitzedek, the king of Shalem, brought Avraham bread and wine. And he, Malchitzedek, was a Kohen. He was a priest. Not from Aaron, obviously. He was a priest. Mikhail Elyon, to the Almighty God. Now Chazal actually say, Malchit Sedek is none other than Shem, the son of Noah, which is actually Abraham's great-great-great-grandfather. And Malchit Sedek was the name that every king of Jerusalem got, even among the Goyim. Malchit Sedek literally means righteous king, king of righteousness. Because Yerushalayim was understood, this seems to be connected to Rambam, Yerushalayim was understood to be a holy city. And whoever was the king of Jerusalem, or the king of Shalem, was a holy man. So, the original name of the city was Shalem. That comes from peace, it comes from completion, it comes from perfection, Shlemut, and the like. So that's the name Shalem. And the king of Jerusalem, even among the Umos Ha'olam, was considered to be a holy person who was given the hereditary title Malchi Tzedek. Now, where do you get the second name of Jerusalem, Yira? That is the name that Avram Avinu gave the Temple Mount. Vayikra Avraham Lamakamahu. After the Akedah, Avraham called that Makaim Hashem Yireh. God will see. Hashem Yireh. Now, what will God see? What, 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 just in terms of Pashat Pshat. What will God see? That means God will look down at the world and he will always see the sacrifice of Yitzchak, the ashes of Yitzchak, so to speak, that will be a source of mercy and kindness for B'nai Yisrael. Hashem Yireh. So, the short name was Yireh. So Yerushalayim is Yireh Shalem. The Temple Mount is called Yireh. The rest of the city is called Shalem. Yireh Shalem. Okay, 
But that's pretty close, but it's not exact. So how do you get Yerushalayim from Yireh Shalem? So the Yeru, the U, comes from a gematria because Yireh is Yudresh Aleph Hey. Aleph and Hey equals six. Aleph is one and Hey is five. So if you combine Aleph plus Hey, you get the letter Vav. So that's Yeru. So Yeru is Yira, a short way of writing Yira because you combine the Aleph and the Hey. Okay, but even that is not quite there yet. That gives us the name Yeru Shalem, which is actually just like the English, Jeru Salem. Yeru Shalem. We're still, left with, we're still left with the problem. Where do you get Yerushalayim? Now, if you look in Tanakh, well, not in Tanakh, not in the Torah, but if you look in the Nevi'im and Kesuvim, when Yerushalayim is spelt out, it actually is never spelt with the second yet. It is always spelt Yerushalayim, even though we read it, we do read it, Yerushalayim, but it's actually spelt Yerushalayim. Jerusalem. So where do you get the, the extra yud, the second yud? So this is also very beautiful, that there are two Jerusalems. We know that the second yud connotes a plural. Yodayim, two hands. Raglayim, two legs. Oznayim, two ears. Yerushalayim, two Jerusalems. Two Yerushalems are called Yerushalayim. There are two Jerusalems. Now what are the two Jerusalems? It's not the old city and the rest of the city. And it's not West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem. But the two Yerushalayims are Yerushalayim and Shemayim. Yerushalayim Shalmala and Yerushalayim Shalmata. Do you get the idea here? There is the heavenly Yerushalayim and there is the earthly Yerushalayim, which is a reflection of the heavenly Yerushalayim. And when the two Yerushalayims are in alignment, that is when we're in a state of Geula. When they're not together, when the Yerushalayim Shalmata is not mechuvan to the Yerushalayim Shalmata, Mila and Mala, then we have a disjointing, a lack of connection. We're not yet zocha to Geula and the Beis Hamikdash. So that's why David Amalek talks about Yerushalayim Kiir Shechubra La Yachtav. A city that is united together is referring to the Chibor of Mala and Mata. Okay, and our job is to kind of, through our Torah, our Masim Tovim, our Avas Yisrael, is to push the earthly city to be connected to the heavenly city. And then that brings the Geula. And that brings the base on Mikdash. And that's the meaning of Yerushalayim Yireh Shalem. Now, to go back for a moment 
to Avram Avinu's name. Avram Avinu called the Harabayas, the Temple Mount, Hashem Yira. Hashem will see. Now I just want to explicate the rest of the Pasuk. Asher Yeyamer Hayom, as it, and it will be said in the day, Bahar Hashem Yeira'eh, in the mountain of God, Yeira'eh, he will be seen. Yira means Hashem sees, or will see. Yira, Hashem will see. Yeira'eh is he will be seen. So what is that all about? So here the Medrash tells us that in this world, Hashem sees us. He knows everything we do, but we don't see Hashem. We don't understand Hashem. And we see many things in this world that don't make sense to us. We see Tzaddikim suffer. We see Rishoyim prosper. Why do bad things happen to good people? We don't know. Hester Panim. We see a world of chesed of Hashem, but we also see a world of gevura and punishment. But hayom, there will come a day, that's by yom ahu yi Hashem echad, on that day where Hashem will be one, not only will Hashem see us, but God will be seen by us. That doesn't mean we'll see a physical being, but it will be seen by us for what, uh, the meaning of what Hashem is doing. We will see that even the din and even the gevura and even the punishments are all part of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's divine chesed. Har Hashem So now it's yira. It will then become same letters but different vowels. You'll go from yira to yeh Okay. One other point about this though. Although the word yira means God will see. He will look down at his people and see the akedah. But you will notice that the same letters for the word he will see are also for Yira, fear and reverence of Hashem. Yira Hashem, same letters. So the Medrash actually says, as a drasha, that Avram's name of Yira is not only a reference to God seeing us, but it's also a reference to a place of reverence and Yira Hashem. So put in that way, the two names of Yerushalayim is the city of Yira, the city of fear of Hashem, and Shalom, right? Because once you say that Yira doesn't just mean see, but it also refers to Yira Hashem. So Yerushalayim is the city of Yira, of fear, reverence, and the city of Shalom. Very, very interesting. Now, you know, there's a famous uh, teaching in many, many Svarim that although all of Eretz Yisrael is Kaddosh, there are four cities that are especially holy in Eretz Yisrael. Right? The four holy cities, Yerushalayim, of course, is uh, all the way up, then Hebron, Marasa Machpela, and then Tiveria, and then Tzfat. These are the four cities. I was actually in, in Sfat uh, for Shabbos, so I'm still a little, little mystical. I have to shake it. But okay. Uh, now it's brought down that the four cities correspond to the four basic elements out of which matter is constitu- uh, constituted. 
Yerushalayim is the city of fire. Chevron, which is graves, the graves of the bodies of the Avas and Imos, is the city of Afor, dirt. Tiberia, on Yam Kineret, is the city of water. And Svat, which is such a mystical city, kind of not, people are not involved in the practical aspects of life. It's all of a, an ethereal, mystical existence, is the city of air, air, or wind. Now, all of these things have positives and negatives. Fire is passion, enthusiasm. can also be machlokas and acrimony. Water can be purity and joy, but it can also be too much involvement in sensual pleasures. Dirt can mean humility, humbleness. It can also be depression and self-loathing. Air can mean a mystical devakas to Hashem, but it can also mean an inability to take things down into the practical realm of life. So each of these yesodos has a makar in Kedusha and a makar in Tuma, because they can be taken either way, like parallel sets. So Yerushalayim is the city of fire. So with Torah, Avoda, Mitzvahs, but sometimes a lot of machlokas and acrimony. We have both. I remember, I once, I didn't have to do it today, uh, but uh, one of my trips to Tzvat, we had to, my wife and I had to take a cab from Tzvat back to Yerushalayim. So, you know, it was a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour trip. So after that, when he entered Yerushalayim, it was like 8 o'clock in the morning. We had to leave like, you know, 6. And uh, it's already rush hour, so the horns are blaring everywhere. The horns are blaring everywhere. The cab driver said he was a cab driver for 50 years in Tzvat, 5-0 years. He says he never once heard a horn blow in Svat. <laughs> he said, in Yerushalayim, he said, he heard more horns in two minutes than he had heard for 50 years of driving in Svat. Right, Svat, laid back, right? Uh, you know, if there's a cow in the road, you got to stop, you know, whatever it is, the sheep are crossing the street, uh, you, you know, you got to wait. <laughs> Yerushalayim is very different, right? Yerushalayim, uh, when a light changes, uh, you have around, uh, I don't know, point zero 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 one seconds before <laughs> before they start uh, blowing, blowing the horn. Because we have Aish, we have the Kayach of Aish. But sometimes that Aish turns into an anger and an impatience. We have to use the Aish in good ways, not in negative ways. I remember uh, years ago, my, one of my first times I came to Yerushalayim just uh, as a visitor. So uh, outside the place where I was staying, like early in the morning, uh, there was a whole bunch of people that were yelling and shouting and what was going on. There was a fender bender. Somebody had hit someone's car. It's like a scratch. So they were fighting. Also, all the neighbors came out from all the buildings to argue about who was at fault, etc. So somebody said at one point, you know, why don't we call the police to just get a report and have it decided? So they said, no, we don't want to call the police yet. We haven't finished fighting. We have to have a certain amount of time that we fight over this. Then we'll call the police when, when we finished uh, making our arguments. So the point I want to share with you is that the two names of Jerusalem, Yireh and Shalem, actually express 
the kind of dichotomy that we live in, and it's connected to the Omer as well, and that is Shalem is connected to peace, harmony, achdus, avas Yisrael. Yira is connected to obedience to Hashem's Torah, a passion to keep the halacha right, Eish. So here's the thing. In the world we live in, Sometimes the more religious people get, the more passionate they get, the more careful they get about mitzvahs, the less avas Yisrael they have because they look at other people and they think, oh, you're not really religious, you're not really from, you're not really doing things. So sometimes the more yira, the less shalom. And the other way around, the more shalom, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's fine, everyone has the right to their opinion, you believe in abortion, gay marriage, you know, all of that is great. Who am I to judge? So on one hand, I love everybody, everybody's good, everybody's wonderful. But then you become mushy and confused about what is MS in life. So we seem to be in a seesaw. The more Yira, the less Shalom. The more Shalom, the less Yira. So what does our great city teach us? That you have to have both. This is not an either or. This is not, I do one at the expense of the other. I have to have both. I have to be a person of Emes, a person who constantly strives to grow in my Torah, in my mitzvahs, in my Yiddishkeit, in my adherence to halacha, and not being carried with the current, not being like the, the dead fish that can move with the current. I have to be willing to go against conventional wisdom when that's incorrect. I don't follow the majority when they're doing bad. But at the same time, to still have a love and even a respect for people, to see their good, to see that within even the things that are not always good, there will be a core of something, MS, something that's good. To see the pintaliyid, to see the goodness in a Jewish neshama. Remember I mentioned before, the Rebbe didn't even like the term, which is a very common term, kirov rechaikim. Kirov rechaikim means you try to take a person who's far from Hashem and try to be makarev them, draw them nearer to Hashem. Right? Everybody says that. Uh, I want to be makarev people. The Rebbe didn't like it. The Rebbe said, how can you talk about a Jew being far from Hashem? No Jew is far from Hashem. Maybe a person doesn't know he's close to Hashem, but that, so your job is to help him, help him or her understand that, but that's not called far from Hashem. Right? It's a beautiful, it's a very, actually a very beautiful idea that then he, then he adds a little sarcastic. He says, he says anyway, if there is a karav and a rachak, how do you know you're the karav and that person is the rachak? Maybe it's reversed. Maybe he's closer than you are. Okay. That was kind of a little bit of a shtach, you know, there. Uh, but the main point was that who can say? How can you say a Jew is far from Hashem? Hashem is, a Jew is never far from Hashem. A Jew doesn't know it. He doesn't realize it. Okay. So that's what the name. So, so there's something in the name of, of our city that teaches us this idea. You have to have Yira and Shalom, and you can't allow your Yira to take away your Shalom, and you can't allow your Shalom 
to take away your yira. Okay, so that's kind of the message that we get uh, from the names. Um, I have less to say about the significance of Tel Aviv, but I'll think, I'll think about it. But, uh, <laughs> but at least Yerushalayim, we know, has a very great chashivas in terms of its name. Okay, so I wish you all a wonderful, wonderful yomtif, a real uh, Kabbalah satayra. May uh, Ava, I guess, uh, Sunday Shavuot, so I guess we won't be here next Sunday, but Be'ezus Hashem, uh, we should all feel that we're standing at Har Sinai, we're hearing Hashem speaking to us, our neshamas, our makabel, the Torah, and we should be zaycha to have nasev and nishma, b'leivachad, with one heart and then one togetherness. Do you uh, people go to the Kaisal? Do you go to the Kaisal in the morning? It was morning? You do? Okay. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, okay.